This evening's reading is from Genesis chapter 32. Can you hear me? Okay, good. And it should be on the screen behind me and in front of you. So it's the whole of uh, Genesis chapter 32. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanahim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, that I may find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God, my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all your kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I heard only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers of their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 mule donkeys. He put them in care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to you, my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, Perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. 
after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Ravina, thank you very much for that reading. Can I invite you to keep it open in front of you? We're going to be digging into it in just a moment. Well, for those of you who may be new here, uh, my name is Jit, one of the ministers here at St. Jude's, and it's a great privilege to be carrying on our sermon series this evening, looking at what's technically called the patriarchal family, or the first fathers of the faith. Adam, last week, shared on how God chose to redeem all of us, every single one of us. We'd gone astray, we'd fallen, but God chose one family, starting with someone called Abraham, who turned into Abraham, then on to his son Isaac, who we looked at last week, and now we're looking at someone called Jacob, and this family was to be the start of God's promise to turn that all around, to bring salvation to the earth, and restore what had gone astray, and bring it back even better than ever, a new creation that was referenced earlier. And it seems like in this next generation, Jacob, everything should be fairly straightforward. If it's anything like Abraham and Isaac's story, this promise, this covenant promise to bless the nations through this family, is just simply going to go on from Jacob down to the next person, Joseph. But actually, in the book of Genesis, more time is devoted to the life and story of Jacob than most other of the patriarchs. And that's because it's not so straightforward, because he's a complete mess. He really is. And God needs to do a powerful work in his life before he can use him to transmit that promise onto the next generation, all the way on through Jesus to us here today. And we're going to look at his life and what we can learn from it this evening. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray and ask, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you might open it to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. By the power of your Spirit, give us hearts to comprehend, hearts of flesh, not of stone, that would receive your word, that would bear fruit at right time. 
Pray, Lord, take away any distractions, any errant thoughts, and may we be captive to your word. Amen. Well, you might have caught in the news this week the story of someone called Martin Gavin, who had been made best man by his close friend, Dino. And uh, the story says that when Dino and his stag party of 16 other friends turned up last week to Manchester Airport for a stag weekend to Prague, organised by his best man, Gavin, they discovered that no flights had been booked and no hotels had been arranged and the best man was missing in action. It later turned out that he'd spent the £7,945 he'd been given by the stag party on himself. When, When he was contacted... He then said that he was terminally ill with bowel cancer, so he couldn't make it. But he continued to insist that he had booked the flights, both of which, of course, turned out to be untrue very quickly. The groom later said this, I was completely devastated. The fact that he could do that to everyone is beyond belief. I felt like I was living the script from a soap drama. I'm mortified that the biggest con man I've ever known was the person I asked to be my best man. Well, that jumped out at me because I wanted to start with that as Jacob, when we consider him, is a con man of that level. He is rightly called a deceiver who lies and manipulates to get his own way. It started at birth, when he grabbed his trim brother's heel, Esau, and seemed to want to overtake him in coming out of the womb. A prophetic sign, almost, of what was to come in his life. And there and then, he's called Jacob, which means striver or grabber. He to grab his brother and pull him back so that he could be first. As a young man, if you know the story, he swindled Esau out of his birthright for a pot of stew, a carefully placed and timed pot of stew, got him a birthright. And then later on, he again, he deceived his aged father Isaac, pretending to be Esau, to get his final blessing, the death blessing, that Esau was due. And carrying on in the story, Esau is furious about this. And Jacob soon has to leave home and he runs to his uncle Laban in Padan and Ram. That sounds like a bit of a song I'm not going to sing. And it turns out that Laban himself is also a bit of a swindler, a bit of a manipulator and striver. And you'll know what happens. He wants to marry one of Laban's daughters, the beautiful one, and is willing to work seven years for that beautiful daughter. But come the wedding night, he's given the other sister... And he has to work another seven years for the other sister that he'd wanted originally. Fourteen years of free labor that Laban gained, deceiving him, swindling him. But even then, it turns out, Jacob was even better as a swindler. And eventually, the swindler that was Laban was outswindled by Jacob. And he leaves Laban's presence after 20 years with a huge flock, vast possessions, on his way back home, because he'd been told by God, you've got to go back home. And of course, he knows what's going to be back home, what stands between him and the family home. Of course, it's Esau. 
who is still probably furious. And this is the start of our story. He's on his way back home. And so he sends messengers ahead of him. He's very clever. He says, I'm your servant. I've gained all this possession in my time away from you. But I'm your servant, Esau. Hoping that Esau, with this sign of humility, might be pacified. But his messengers come back and say, there are 400 men with Esau and they're coming straight for you. And he knows, oh no, he's still furious, isn't he? He's still angry. And he's thrown into a night of utter terror, utter tumult, but into a night that would transform his life from the inside out. And we're looking at that tonight. You see, God allowed these things to happen because he knew what Jacob was like, but he also knew he wanted to use Jacob. He'd chosen this family to bless the whole earth. And so he had to transform him. He had to bring him to a moment of transformation. So that Jacob, the deceiver, the striver who couldn't be trusted to look after your seat of the cinema, could become Israel, the God wrestler, the one through whom the promises of God would flow to the nations. He had to be changed. God would have to transform him. And I want to say, applying this to us straight away, is that God who transforms in this passage Jacob to become Israel, the man he was born to be, is the same God who works the same power of transformation in our lives. It's often been said that God loves us so much that he accepts us just as we are. But he also loves us so much that he's unwilling to leave us just as we are. One of the worst things he could do is to leave us unchanged and unredeemed, spiritually stunted and not fully formed. Of every single person in this room, God has a purpose and destiny for you. I believe it because the word tells us. You're not an accident. He has a purpose for your life. All the days of your life were written in his book before any one of them came to be, as psalmist says. He had a plan. And part of that plan, the Bible teaches, is for you to become the most fully you version of you you could become. A lot of you's there. That God has an intention for you. So that, for example, David, you become the most fully formed David you could possibly be. Or Joss, or Ruth, or Shailing, or Adam, or any one of us would become the most fully, per- fully, vi- fully glorifying, really, person that God wants us to be, that reflects and radiates his glory. And to do that, God is going to have to do something in our lives, transform us from the person we used to be the person he intends us to be, from one degree of glory to the next, the New Testament teaches. And he's doing that right now in your life. Right now. A good question to ask yourself is, am I more Christ-like this, today compared to this time last year? Am I more Christ-like? Has God been transforming my life? Am I, am I more fully the person he intends me to be? Through the things I've experienced, through thick and thin, through the things that I've walked with him through, have I been transformed? Because this is actually the central agenda that he has 
in his heart for our lives. He couldn't care less what we do. He couldn't care less how, how well we perform at our job compared to the image of Christ he wants to form inside of us, the person he longs to see us grow up and become. And this is true for if you're young, in your 20s, if you're still working life out in your 30s, if you're getting there in your 40s, if you're perhaps getting really there in your 50s or perhaps feeling actually I've got there in your 60s or 70s and 80s, every single age, he's actually doing this in your life. For Jacob, he does it in three steps in a single night. He has to do something very sharp and very quickly to get him ready. And I'm going to look at these three steps and apply them, saying that these are three steps that God does in our lives as well, as he seeks to transform us to be the people we're meant to be. And the three steps are a stripping, a wrestling, and a blessing. A stripping, a wrestling, and a blessing. So firstly, a stripping. The first step God has to do with Jacob to make him Israel is to strip him down to the very core of his being, ensuring that in his sovereignty, everything that he normally is surrounded by is taken away. There and then, that very night. There are three things. Firstly, Jacob is stripped of all his possessions. All this huge flock that he had gathered disappears overnight. In verses 7 and 8, if you look at the text, it says, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. And the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So overnight, suddenly, he loses half his group. He sends them off, hoping that they'd escape. And he stays with the other half. Then later on, after he's prayed to God, which he very wisely does, he devises another cunning plan. This time, it's not about division. This time it's about bribing. He divides what's remaining into five waves of animals, each one actually more expensive and more valuable than the other. And he sends them on in front of himself. And he says to the people that are looking after each herd, when you meet Esau, say that this is a gift from his brother Jacob. And so sequentially, one after another and after another, as this gift gets bigger and bigger and bigger, more valuable, he's hoping Esau might calm down, might be pacified, might be bought off by this gift. You see, he's very good at this kind of stuff, very good at manipulation. But what it means is that by the end of this night, he's left with none of his possessions. They've all been sent ahead of him or sent away. The next thing he's stripped of is his assurance of God's presence. You see, fascinatingly, at the beginning of the chapter, the angels of God meet Jacob on his way. We don't know what happened, but a sure sign that God was with him as he'd promised him in Bethel 20 years earlier when he was running away from the home that he grew up in. And so very wisely, he prays to God in verse 9, and he prays a prayer asking for salvation from God's hand. He prays a prayer saying, you're the God of my forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. I don't deserve anything I've been given. But you are so good. You are so faithful. Therefore, save me because I know what's coming. My brother Esau is going to come and kill me. Please save me. But notice, at the end of verse 12, nothing happens. 
This is the one who had been met with by angels the previous day. There were no angels that appear. This is the same person who'd received dreams in Bethel of an open vision of heaven. There are no dreams now. There's not even the simple word of God ringing in his ear. Nothing happens. God seems silent. There's no answer to his prayer. He's been stripped of that assurance that God is with him. And of course, he never was not with him. But God in his sovereignty and his wisdom is saying, I'm just making sure that even that is taken away because I've got to do something radical in your life. And the last thing that Jacob is stripped of is his family, actually, and the people closest to him. You see, verse 22, before he crosses a place called Jabbok, which was a ford on the way back home, he sends his family ahead of him. He knows that they're not the target, it's him. So if Esau still is wanting to attack him, well, they'll be safe if they go ahead of him. It's a very brave act, a very humble act, a very loving act. But verse 24 says it all. So Jacob was left alone. When it says alone, it really means he was alone. No possessions, no assurance of God being with him, and none of his family. He was left completely alone that night, stripped of every single thing that he would normally put his trust in. But this is the exact place God wanted him to be. He wanted him stripped. He wanted him stripped down to the core so the core of who he is could be dealt with. And this is a tough word because, in essence, God hasn't changed. He hasn't changed his ways with us. There will be times in our life where God does this stripping work, where he takes away everything that we would normally surround ourselves with, everything we'd put our trust in, everything that might interfere with his work in our lives, actually. Everything that might set itself up as a God compared to him. And he does this lovingly. He's not being malicious to Jacob here. He's being as loving as he could possibly be because he knows what he wants to do in his life. The 20th century preacher and uh, prophetic preacher, in my view, A.W. Tozer, put it like this. To do his supreme work of grace within you, God will take away from your heart everything you love the most. Everything you trust in will go from you. Piles of ashes will lie where your most precious treasures used to be. But slowly, you will discover God's love in your suffering. You will feel and understand the ministry of the night. Its power to purify, to detach, to humble, to destroy the fear of death. And what is more important to you at the moment, the fear of life. And you will learn that sometimes pain can do what even joy cannot, such as exposing the vanity of earth's trifles and filling your heart with longing for the peace of heaven. This is what God is doing in Jacob's life. It's what he often does, actually, in our lives, that we might be transformed. I wonder if any of you have ever known this, the stripping of God to the core. If you have, it's unmistakable, both in its severity of hurt, but in its also sweetness of kindness. He does this because he loves us. 
because he longs to see us changed. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, the story is told of someone called Eustace, who's a young boy on a sea voyage in the mythical land of Narnia, and he stumbles on a dragon's hoard of gold and silver that completely enthralls him. And above all, there's this golden amulet that he's so attracted to that he puts on around his wrist. But to his shock and horror, suddenly his skin starts to become scaly and thicker and thicker. And very soon, he himself becomes a dragon. This dragon skin that he can't seem to get rid of. No matter what he does, he flies up against cliffs and rubs himself against them. He dives into the sea. He rubs himself on the woods. And it just won't come off. But then, as in all these stories, he sees Aslan, the lion. And let me read what Lewis says. The encounter the great lion who said, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done a thousand times before. Only they hadn't hurt those times. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the other times. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and much smaller than I had been. I turned into a boy again. He just had to let Aslan do it. The tears hurt it. Hurt it like nothing he'd experienced. But the result was transformation. It was all gone. Aslan had got to the core of it. He dealt with it all, and he was a boy again. Sometimes if God is going to change us to be who we're meant to be, he has to strip us with his claws. The tears hurt. They really do. But it's so that we're, in the end, who we're meant to be. I know this isn't a very popular teaching. Whenever I've led prayer ministry, I don't think I've ever had anyone come up to me and say, I want God to do this. But this is actually probably how he answers some of the prayers that we pray. This is what he does. I encourage you, if you feel like you're in such a time at the moment, well, trust that this is a God who loves you and does it for a reason. And if you find yourself in such a time in the future, to trust. He knows what he's doing. He really does. The other side of it you'll see. But for now you have to trust. Well, that's the first thing that... uh, God does with Jacob, he strips him to the core. It's a stripping. The next thing he does is a wrestling. He wrestles with Jacob. Verse 24, let me read. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. 
When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now this is probably one of the most mysterious events in the whole of the Bible. Somewhere in the middle of the night, a man jumps Jacob and starts wrestling with him. He appears to be a man, but then with a simple touch, he dislocates Jacob's hip. And by the end of it, Jacob realizes, no, he's someone more than a man and asks a blessing for him, from him, sorry. And in fact, later in verse 30, looking back on what had just happened, it says he called the the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. This person who jumps him and starts wrestling with him is actually God. And this, of course, raises all kinds of questions. Well, who is this exactly? Is this Jesus before he was incarnated somehow? God in the flesh? Is this the angel of the Lord who's often made as equivalent to God in the Old Testament? Is this someone completely different who we're just not told? Who is this man? Who is this man? And we're left with the question, and how does Jacob survive? Moses, centuries later, says, no one, sorry, God says to Moses, centuries later, no one may see my face and live. No one can see my face and live. And yet, it says he saw the God, face of God and managed to survive. What's going on? What is going on? These things are mysteries that aren't actually answered. And that's okay. That's okay, because I think that's part of what God was doing. He was drawing Jacob into a deep and mysterious time. You see, his whole life, Jacob was used to winning. In the end, he always got the upper hand. In the end, he always triumphed. But when it comes to this wrestling match that is initiated by this man, he can't outmaneuver him. He can't get the upper hand. And now the master of of cunning and strategy can barely understand what is going on. And no matter how hard he tries throughout the night wrestling with this guy, he can't prevail against him. The winner becomes the one who's unable to win. If any of you have caught any of the wrestling in the Olympics over the last couple of weeks, you might have noticed that the strategy to winning is either to push them out of the arena or to flip them on their backs and get them to submit. Or Jacob, no matter how hard he tried, couldn't push God away. He couldn't push this man out of the arena. He couldn't get rid of him. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't outmaneuver him to flip on his back and get him to submit and just be quiet. This man wrestled with him and he couldn't win. No matter how hard he tried. You see, Jacob had been stripped to the core and now that core had to be dealt with. And God does this on purpose. He humbles him. He says, despite his ability and gifting, God was God and he wasn't. There's someone out there who he can't win against. No matter how hard he tries. And in that, in the midst of that wrestling throughout the night, he redirects Jacob's gifting and abilities. So that the one who is used to being a striver with man 
becomes the one who wrestles with God. Redirects, there's an internal shift. Redirects all his guile, all his tenacity, all his strength away from people and towards God. And because of that, he's given a new identity. Because of that, he becomes a blessing to all who would follow him. He becomes the head of a nation. A nation is named Israel, which means he strives with God. He wrestles with God. This is a fundamental shift that God does inside of him. And we can't locate exactly where in the wrestling this happens. But I think it's sometime in the middle of it because he's changed by the end of it. Verse 26, it says, at dawn, God reveals himself. He simply touches his hip and it dislocates. Jacob, Jacob can't know now, can't not know now that this isn't God. Someone that can do that, he realizes, oh, this guy could have had me any time. This guy could have got me to submit at any point in the night. This person is more than just a normal man. But then God tests him with a bit of a tease. He tries to get him to give up. He says, it's daybreak. Come on, give up, Jacob. And Jacob, having realized that this is God, says, no. I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see that tenacity, that determination, that, that innate ability to strive has been redeemed. It's no longer directed in the wrong way to people. It's directed to God and say, I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. It's a picture, of course, of intercessory prayer. I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. And the change has happened. He's no longer Jacob. He's now Israel. Now, applying this, we know that in this story, at this point, Jacob is at least in his mid to late 40s. He left home as a young man and spent 20 years with Laban, so he's probably in his 40s now. He's middle-aged. A time in life where who he is is fairly set. He's worked out life to a certain extent. He's worked out how to do things, how to live. And let me suggest, for God, therefore, to change him on a deep level of identity, this is what he had to do. He had to wrestle with the very core of who Jacob was. He had to strip everything else away and turn it, turn it to the right direction. And again, this isn't great news, but for us actually, the older we get, the harder it is to change us. When we're young, it's very easy actually, because we're still learning. By the time you hit your 30s and 40s, coming fairly set in your ways and often sadly this ends up being the only way that God can transform us on a deep personal identity level he has to wrestle with us in the middle of the night he has to lead us to a place where everything's stripped away where everything that you'd normally put your trust in has been taken from you and then he has to meet with you and then he picks a fight with you and he asks the question, will you fight back? Will you fight back? That when push comes to shove, will you seek my face or will you try and run away? And again, if anyone's ever experienced this, it's unmistakable when God picks a fight with you. But he does it again to transform you, to change you, to see what you'll do. He wants to develop 
your inner person. He wants to develop that tenacity that seeks his face no matter what. He wants to develop that ability to strive to see his face, to strive to see his kingdom come. He wants to take away all your infancy, which involves manipulating others or playing games. And he wants to develop instead a holiness that changes nations. That's what he does. But he has to do it in the middle of the night. He has to do it by picking a fight with you and he has to do it, showing you that he is God and you're not. That he wants to change you. It's interesting that as I was reading around the subject of transformation, I came across a fact in the field of biology that when a butterfly emerges out of a cocoon from a caterpillar, one of the most important stages of that transformation process is the, the caterpillar or the butterfly, depending on what you want to call it, trying to get out of the cocoon. You see, the actual process of trying to break out of the cocoon and wrestle out and somehow strive to get out is the most important part of that butterfly in the end being able to fly, to be fully transformed. Because as it struggles, those wing muscles develop, the blood vessels expand and grow in size, and it gains the ability to start flapping its wings. If you take the butterfly out artificially beforehand as an act of kindness, opening up the cocoon and taking it out, it never fully forms, actually. It never does. It's actually in the process of that wrestling that actually it becomes what it's meant to be. And let me say to you, often that is God's way. It's only in wrestling with him in the dark of the night, in the place that's only between you and him, no one else, that he forms you to be the person you're meant to be. This is the place. And let me say to you today, if God is picking a fight with you, if he's allowing circumstances to conspire, if he's allowing situations to seemingly surround you and stripping everything else away, he wants you to fight back. He wants you to seek his face. He wants you to not let him go until he blesses you. Don't run away from this. Let him have his way. Let him do what he wants to do. Let him transform who you are. Oh, this, that was the second thing. There's a wrestling. Lastly, and this is a, a bit better news, there is a blessing. After all of that, there is blessing. You see, after the stripping and the wrestling, there are three blessings that come in quick succession to Jacob because he's been transformed. Firstly, he's given a new name. It says, verse 28, the man said, you will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and prevailed. He'd passed the test. He was no longer called by a name to be ashamed of, Jacob, deceiver. Now he's called Israel the one whom a nation will be named after. Secondly, God gives him his personal word of blessing. Verse 29, Jacob pushes his luck, trying to get some clarity and says, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. 
It's interesting, he doesn't say what the blessing is, but part of me thinks that actually some of the blessing was to change Esau's heart there and then. Because when we see them in the next chapter, Jacob meeting Esau, he runs at him, not in anger, but in love. He embraces him and kisses his neck. Only God could do such a miracle. Only God could so transform that situation around that seemed destined for destruction. And no doubt there's more to that blessing that God speaks over his life. And then thirdly, the third blessing he gives is that he gives Jacob the blessing of a limp. Verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Now you might ask the question, how is a limp a blessing? Surely that's a curse. But no, it's actually probably the biggest blessing God could have possibly given him because it was a permanent reminder of that night for the rest of his life he would remember what happened that night. He'd feel it in the morning. He'd know it especially in the cold weather, <laughs> in the dead of winter, that God met with me. He overcame me, but he transformed me. And now I'm not the person I used to be. Now I'm Israel. Now I'm safe hands for his covenant. Now I'm no longer the deceiver. I'm the one who wrestles with God. A permanent reminder and a permanent reminder to carry on being that person, to carrying on looking to God, to leaning on him as he limps, to seeking his face as he had done that night, to bring blessing to his family and through his family to the nations. In the New Testament, zooming in on this, the Apostle Paul speaks about this as a thorn in the flesh. God gave him a thorn in the flesh so that he would rely more on God so that his power would be made perfect in weakness. And if God's ever done that to you, given you a thorn, given you a limp, count it as blessing. It means that you know him better than anyone else. It means that you will learn to rely on him. It means that you will become safe hands to be a conduit of his blessing. It means that he gets the glory. It might seem like a curse, but actually it's a blessing to be given this. Well, I've got to end, I've got to end. In the end, God's stripping of Jacob, his wrestling with him, leads to a blessing that changes the world. And I'm gonna end with a poem from the English poet, John Donne, who, in my view, no one has bettered to speak about what goes on here. It's called, uh, the first line of the poem is, Batter my heart, three-personed God. And it goes like this. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I might rise and stand, O throw me and bend. Your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town, to another Jew, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie me, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you and thaw me shall never be free. 
nor chaste except you ravish me. Let me pray for us. Loving Father, thank you that you seek to transform, that in your love you don't leave us as we are. We're aware that that can be, for many here, a painful process, a place of stripping, of wrestling with you, in order that there might be a time of blessing. But we pray and ask that you might enthrall us, lest we never be free, that we would be chaste because you ravish us with your love. So Lord, we give you that permission. Do that work in our lives. Transform us in the image of your Son. Amen.